Well, let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Proverbs, to Proverbs chapter 23. Uh, This is the platform text we've been looking at in our mini-series on addictions in the book of Proverbs and in the larger scope of Scripture. And um, we want to conclude our study of uh, what the Bible has to say about addictions, really just talking about a question that's been floating on the surface here during our study Uh, And that is, what is the Christian's relationship to alcohol? What is the believer's relationship to alcohol? The Bible has a lot to say on that. And uh, I just want to try to summarize that for us today by thinking about seven principles that the Bible gives us for thinking about the Christian's relationship to alcohol. And, of course, Proverbs 23 that we've looked at over and over and over again gives a a great um, helpful, not not in terms of encouraging, uh, a look at what it means uh, to be overcome with an addiction with alcohol. We get a description of drunkenness and the negativities associated with that. And uh, so we want to look more closely at just the believer's relationship to alcohol today. And let me just say up front, I recognize this is a very sensitive topic. I believe it's uh, one that the Bible gives us freedom to have somewhat of a different opinion about from Christian to Christian. And I just want you to know I'm not here to step on anybody's toes, make anybody feel uncomfortable um, you know, we all came from different backgrounds, we all had different experiences, and I do think that the Bible allows for some diversity of opinion. But, but what I want to do this morning is just to let the, sp- the Scripture speak for itself and, and, and try to come up with a biblical framework that will help us to make wise decisions as we think about alcohol. Uh, just by way of introduction, um, the first thing I'd like you to see is that the Bible presents wine as a sign of God's blessing. Uh, The Bible very often presents wine as a sign of God's blessing, and it should be enjoyed as such. Uh, That's that's really the first thing we see Scripture teach. So uh, let me just give you a couple of examples of this truth. If we we head back to uh, Genesis chapter 27, Uh, Genesis chapter 27, we'll look at verse... Uh, 28 together of uh, Genesis 27. As you're turning there, this is the account of Isaac's blessing of his children. And you remember uh, Jacob stole the blessing. We remember that story. But what's interesting is to get Isaac's perspective as one of the um, uh, fathers of the faith here, to get his perspective on uh, wine in particular, and as he's blessing his son, in verse 28 of Genesis 27, he says this, Now, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and in abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you, be masters of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. So, so we see here that, that Isaac is presenting the blessing of Jacob here um, to include what he calls here an abundance of grain and of new wine. So in, in this, this helps us to see that the people of God saw wine as a sign of God's blessing, to have that available to them. We see something very similar in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, Moses is recounting the law to the new generation of Israelites that uh, um, are standing at the uh, river waiting to go over into the promised land. And um, Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 13, that if they are careful to keep the law of God and walk in his ways and keep his covenant, God will bless them. And this is a description of some of the blessings. In verse 13, Moses says this, he, meaning God, uh, which he swore to, he will love you, excuse me, verse 13, he will love you, God will love you and bless you and multiply you and he will also also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd uh, and the young of your flock and the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. So we again see this new wine being a sign of God's blessing upon the people. And uh, we see something very similar in the book of Amos and, and in other parts of Scripture. So, so we start with this, this introductory thought that God uh, presents wine in the Bible as a sign of God's blessing, and uh, God wants people to enjoy that as such. 
Uh, with that, as we look at the New Testament, we would also want to recognize that wine was used at the Last Supper. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, as well as the parallel passages in Luke and Mark, uh, tell us that as, as Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, um, it was sort of a modified Passover meal that was going on there, which uh, Jesus gave new significance in the bread and the cup, uh, indicating uh, a reminder of his body and blood that would be shed uh, on the cross, um, that wine was a part of that first communion. Um, we know that because the text tells us, um, uh, calls it the, the fruit of the vine that Jesus talks about there. And uh, we, we can't walk away from this thinking that Jesus was using grape juice. Now, I know there's a lot of Christians that think that it was actually grape juice that was being used for communion, and uh, those dear folks that would hold that view would say that, uh, you know, anytime we see Jesus or the disciples or other people uh, consuming wine, it was really grape juice. Uh, well, there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that view for two reasons. Uh, the first problem with that is that the Greek word oinos, which is the normal word for wine, means fermented drink. It, it, it cannot mean unfermented juice. That's just not what the word means in an etymological sense. The second problem with the grape juice view is that if we flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is instructing the Corinthians about communion and how it should be done in the local church, we know that there were some abuses going on in the church at Corinth. And one of the abuses was people were um, consuming too much wine at the Lord's table and actually becoming drunk. Well, of course, if you drink too much grape juice, you may have a a sore belly, you may have a stomach ache, but you're not going to get drunk. So so clearly, what was used in biblical times for communion instituted instituted by Jesus was wine. Uh, Grape juice was not used in the communion uh, ceremony that we see in Scripture. Okay, so with that introduction, um, let's talk about uh, seven principles that the Bible gives us for wisdom to think about the Christian's relationship with alcohol. So here's the first one. We need to recognize that alcohol in the Bible was very different than alcohol today. Alcohol in the Bible was very different than alcohol today. Let, let me explain that to you. Biblical wine that is used you know, throughout Scripture, what, what we see referenced in the Bible was wine that had been diluted somewhere between three to four parts water to one part of wine. Uh, There's a famous study by an author named Stein who researched um, uh, alcohol and wine in the scriptures from a historical standpoint, from a biblical standpoint. Famous study by Stein. And uh, let me just read to you from... Uh, Stein's work here. This is quoted in a uh, article in Bibliotheca Sacra, which is the Dallas Theological Seminary um, uh, uh, journal, theological journal. Okay, uh, so this is the journal article quoting Stein. Okay, uh, Stein researched wine drinking in the ancient world in Jewish sources and in the Bible. He pointed out that wine in Homer's day—you remember Homer was the Greek author that wrote. Um, the Iliad and some other works, that uh, uh, in Homer's day, wine was 20 parts water and one part wine. Uh, uh, We get that from Homer's work on the Odyssey, another one of his famous literary works. Uh, Pliny referred to wine as eight parts water and one part wine. According to Aristophanes, it was stronger, three parts water, two parts wine. Other classical Greek writers spoke of mixtures, three parts water, one part wine, three to one, water to wine, four to one, uh, two to one, three to one. And so Stein's conclusion, based on uh, the study of these uh, ancient Greek references and and other uh, histories at that time, was that we could probably average it at somewhere between three to four parts water to one part wine. Now now listen listen to this. Sometimes in the ancient world, one part water would be mixed with one part wine. This was considered strong wine. And anyone who drank wine unmixed was looked on as a Scythian, a a barbarian. That means the Greeks would say today, 
You Americans are barbarians drinking straight wine. Um, uh, for example, um, Athenius quoted uh, Menestheus of Athens saying, quote, In daily intercourse to those who drink it moderately, it gives good cheer. But if you overstep the bounds, it brings violence. Mix it half and half, and you get madness. Unmixed and bodily collapse. Here is a pagan saying, Half and half is madness, and unmixed wine brings death. Okay, so that that gives us a little bit of a historical perspective. In fact, uh, Stein concludes, wine today has a much higher level of alcohol than wine in the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament times, one would need to drink 22 glasses of wine in order to consume the large amount of alcohol in two martinis today. So that gives us a historical perspective, and we recognize that the wine... The wine that we're reading about in the Bible, the wine that Jesus likely uh, drunk and and the other disciples and other uh, believers in Scripture, that wine is not the same as when someone has a glass of wine at the local Italian restaurant because the wine in the Bible was highly diluted. We probably average it three to four parts water to one part wine. The second thing you need to know is that biblical wine was used to treat water such that it was safe to drink. How many have been to another country where it was not safe to drink the tap water? All right, yeah, you know, Jack and Susie know all about that from Cambodia. I saw that in some of my travels this year. And, and the reality is most countries, if they have modern plumbing at all, do not have drinking water that's safe. And in fact, some don't even have modern plumbing, right? You have to go to the local well or local stream or something like that. But we have to remember that in the ancient world, in biblical times, water was not safe to drink. There was no reverse osmosis. You didn't go to Costco and for twenty nine ninety nine you buy your reverse osmosis system and mount it in and you're done, right? We, we don't have that technology available in biblical times. So what did people do to kill the bacteria and other impurities that may have been present in the water. Well, one of the things that they did is they would treat the water. And it was very common to treat the water with wine. So you have a glass of water, you would add some wine to it, and that wine worked to kill off some of the bacteria uh, in the wine. And and so it was used uh, to purify water, to clear it out, to to kill uh, anything in there that might make somebody sick. Now, the reason this is important is that you, you, you wouldn't think of people typically dr- just drinking water that was untreated in the ancient day. Uh, it would be water mixed with a little bit of wine in order to kill off uh, anything harmful in the water. So, so that's important because biblical scholars have some disagreement here. Uh, when, when the Bible refers to wine that is consumed, it could be wine that has been diluted heavily by water, as we said, three to four parts water, one part wine, or it could be that we're actually talking about water, you know, mostly water, that has been treated with the wine as to have, um, you know, a a killing effect on any bacteria there so that we would, in a sense, purify the water, making it safe to drink. So we don't know for sure what is meant in scripture but but the point is we're talking about something very different than what we know today highly diluted wine or perhaps water that has been treated with wine to make the water safe uh, but that was common in biblical times and we need to recognize that when we read about the consumption of beverages in the bible the third thing we need to recognize uh, thinking about alcohol in the bible being very different than alcohol today is that biblical wine was used medicinally now, we know that if you're, uh, if you want to go back to Proverbs, uh, this time we'll look at Proverbs chapter 31. We've looked at this text before, but let's come back to it and uh, look at it again in this, in this context. Um, Proverbs chapter 31, uh, as King Lemuel is taught by his mother in this uh, first section, um, we see the admonition in verse 4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. Why is that? Verse 5, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. So we see there the command that kings not ought to drink 
uh, wine and, and thus have their faculties compromised um, so that they don't rule well, so that they are not um, thinking about justice and righteousness and, and caring for the nation in the right way. But notice what he does say. He says, um, verse 6, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Now, what is the author saying here? The, the author is saying there is a legitimate use for the impairing features of alcoholic beverages when people are in a end-of-life situation. Uh, when people are uh, in great pain, in great distress because of a disease, because they're dying, because they have been injured and they're going to die, the Bible is saying it is good and right to intervene with some sort of medical intervention to lessen that person's pain. And of course, they didn't have morphine back then. They didn't have modern painkillers. What they did have is what you see in some of the old westerns, right? where they'd give the poor suffering guy a shot or two of whiskey and, and it had that inebriating effect that allowed the person to be less aware, less conscious of his pain and thus acted as a grace in his suffering. Well, that's what, that's what the author is prescribing here. It's a medicinal use of the intoxicating effects of alcohol. Uh, intoxication is, is bad and sinful, um, you know, in sort of the normal, ordinary courses of life because it, it inhibits our ability to act in godly ways. But in a case like this where you have somebody who is dying, who is in chronic pain, uh, end-of-life issues like that, um, we see it, uh, alcohol being used as a medicine, as a painkiller to lessen a person's pain, comparable to what we think of today with like morphine or other things that we use to treat people at, uh, at end-of-life issues. Um, Notice also the verse 1 Timothy 5.23 there. Uh, in that text, Paul actually encourages his friend, the young pastor Timothy, um, encourages Timothy to no longer drink water exclusively, but to use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So this goes back to what I was saying a moment ago, that sometimes the water was unsafe and it led to um, you know, digestive problems as there was bacteria present in the water. So one of the things they would do is they would treat the water with wine. And that's what Paul's essentially telling Timothy to do. Timothy had some sort of stomach ailment, some sort of digestive problems that are going on. And so Paul tells him uh, to, to use that wine in a medicinal way as a medicine to help with some of those digestive issues, those stomach issues that he was facing. So it is legitimate that, that alcohol be used that way as it was um, used in the Bible in that way. Now, there's another term that's used in the Bible. There, there's a word both in Greek and Hebrew for wine, and then there's another word in both Greek and Hebrew that is usually translated in our Bibles as strong drink or um, intoxicating beverage. In fact, that would be that would be literally what it means. It's a beverage that intoxicates. It typically referred to a drink that was made. Uh, from barley or fruit, and um, it's it's uh, interestingly enough, it's only referenced positively in Scripture one time, and even that verse in Deuteronomy 14 is somewhat ambiguous. The other 17 references where that that English um, translation of the of the Hebrew word um, is used here is um, uh, is used in a negative way. So, in fact, the NIV sometimes translates this term as beer, thinking about, you know, an intoxicating beverage that would be made from barley. So it was like an ancient version of beer in some cases. But that's that strong drink. The, the, the verb form of this word actually is the verb for intoxicate or be drunk. So the verb means get drunk. The noun is how you do it, right? It's the substance, the intoxicating beverage that leads to your intoxication or drunkenness. So that's that's the other word that the Bible uses to describe this. Again, of the 18 times that in the New American Standard Bible the word is translated as strong drink, uh, one might be a positive reference. The other 17 are all warnings, and and that that should that should be significant to us because we're recognizing that though the Bible does 
present wine as something that could be used as, you know, the blessing of God and enjoyed as such in, in, in a certain measure, this intoxicating beverage, the strong drink, the, the non-diluted alcohol is primarily something that the Bible talks about negatively and gives us lots of warnings about. So that should help us to uh, renew our minds and, and, and think rightly about this. Another thing you need to know is that the distillation process of alcohol was not practiced until the ninth century. Uh, distillation is how hard liquor is made today, basically where you you go through a process of increasing, strengthening the alcoholic content, what is measured by proof, right? 80% proof or something like that. Um, but that, that that hard liquor that we think about today, the, the highly alcoholic, very strong alcoholic content drinks uh, that are that are consumed today or used to make all manner of mixed drinks, that form of alcohol was not known until the ninth century A.D. Distillation as a science was invented much earlier, but it was not applied to alcohol until the ninth century. So when we think about the Bible, we're thinking that they really didn't know what we think of today as hard liquor, you know, whiskey and and other uh, other stronger drinks that are available today. We know from the Bible that wine was consumed on special occasions. So similar to today, although there are people that drink wine regularly and drink alcohol regularly, and that's that's a problem, um, we're thinking about in the ancient day, wine was consumed on special occasions primarily. We see it in some of the Old Testament feasts. We see it at weddings, and, and of course we know Jesus in John chapter 2 uh, attended the wedding at Cana, and uh, that's his famous miracle where he turns water into wine. We, we know of that story. And um, But it's just important that we see that wine was not so much the everyday beverage in biblical times, but it was the beverage that was used on special occasions. That, that Again, that highly diluted wine, but nonetheless wine that was consumed on special occasions. And then uh, the last thing I'd like you to see under this this first point, this first principle that alcohol in the Bible was different than alcohol today. Uh, the last point I'd want to make is that Jesus and the disciples consumed wine on occasion. Um, we need to be very honest with Scripture and recognize that, that Jesus, the disciples, other godly men and women in Scripture did consume alcohol. Did they, or they did consume that, that diluted wine that we've talked about uh, and, you know, the reference there, Matthew 26, of course, is to the Lord's Supper and communion. Um, we just need to recognize that, that that did happen in the Bible. Um, it, it's it's not, um, it would be wrong to say that all these people, including Jesus, were only consuming grape juice. Uh, it was a fermented drink. It was that diluted wine. And um, so that's, that's kind of where we start in, in, in trying to be wise about alcohol today is to remember that alcohol in the Bible was very different than alcohol today. Okay, number two, heed the warnings about the danger of alcohol. You guys have seen these verses. We looked at these for the last five weeks together. Uh, the warnings about being with heavy drinkers of wine, what uh, wine can cause if you abuse it, being intoxicated. Remember, remember this word, intoxicated? It means to be led astray. So, so this is really important. We'll, we'll talk about this in a minute. This word, intoxicated. We can read that and we think, okay, as long as I'm not... Blood alcohol level of 0.08, I'm good. Well, that's not what the word means. The word means to be led astray or misled. So it's not just saying don't get drunk. It's saying if you are being impaired in some way by alcohol, that uh, you are using it in a way that God did not intend it to be used. And then we looked at Proverbs 31. So so what are some of the dangers? And uh, again, you can look these up on your own time. There's too many here to look at, but... Uh, slow thinking, stupor, sickness, uh, what else we got here? Staggering, I was trying to alliterate with S's and then I ran out. Uh, arrogance, forgetfulness, confusion, sleepiness, sleepiness, sexual perversion, poverty, obviously full-blown drunkenness. Um, but you, you see, I mean, there, there's a lot of warnings here. Um, by the way, how big of a problem is alcoholism in America? One in eight Americans. 
So we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four. Okay. Now I know I, I'm praying that in this room the stati- we, we blow the statistical way in terms of uh, li- living for other. Uh, when I was an addictions counselor, I read a study. And this has been a long time yeah. ago. But in prison, sixty something. It was in the sixties. Sixty mm-hmm. something percent of all the yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we were talking, um, of course, this week at our conference in ACBC on abuse and uh, man, abuse and addiction go hand in hand, don't they? I mean, you you, you saw that. And then the other thing, abuse and um, alcohol or addictions and suicide go together also. So it correlates. That's another that's another danger is, you know, these are some biblical warnings. But if we were to bring, um, you know, secular statistics alongside of these things we would see that it's a problem it's financial problem it's it's suicide it's destructive destruction relationships it's abuse and you know there's all sorts of you know every bad thing is associated it seems like in some way with this so so just to give you an idea this study one in eight americans or 12.7 percent of the population and um, there was a 49 percent increase in alcoholism uh between um the years of 2000 and I think 2010 in the first decade of this new century. And this article is from the Journal of the American Medical Association 2017 in the psychiatry uh, portion of that journal if you'd like to look up the uh, the literature and read the article. Okay, and and, um, he was kind of thinking like, um, uh, you know, this, this this is not just a a worldwide problem. I was in Russia. Uh, I got a, had the privilege of teaching on um, addiction to a group of biblical counselor students at a seminary in Russia. And of course, they've got. You think of Russians, you think, oh, we like the vodka, right? You know, they, um, and they, of course, their addiction problem is just off the chart. But the reality is, we have an addiction problem too in our country, don't we? And um, part of the problem is that uh, it's so integrated with the American lifestyle in so many ways. So we need to heed those warnings. Interestingly, the three biblical references to those who heart, whose hearts are merry with wine are negative. In 2 Samuel 13, that's where Absalom takes advantage of his brother and kills him when he was merry with wine because he was, he was impaired. Uh, in Esther chapter 1, verse 10, the king, remember after seven days, he was merry with wine. So everybody's drunk off their rocker, all sorts of... Uh, perverse, probably sexual things are going on. That's when he brings in Vashti to show off his wife. And that's probably why Vashti opposed the whole idea to the king. Well, she walked in and she had some level of integrity and said, I'm not getting involved in that. Of course, it cost her her queenship. Um, And then in Ecclesiastes, um, being married with wine is put alongside those that believe that money solves all our problems and makes us happy. So it's, it's like the... You know, the secular lifestyle. So, uh, again, we need to heed the warnings about the danger of alcohol. Number three, don't get drunk. And it's important that you recognize this. Drunkenness in the Bible means any impairment due to alcohol. That's what it means. It's any impairment due to alcohol. It does not mean what we would think of as legally drunk or legally intoxicated. So, uh, men, women, know your limit, right? So, if you're a guy... And you weigh 100 pounds, you have two drinks, you are legally intoxicated. But let's say you weigh 160 pounds or 180 pounds or even 200 pounds. You're not legally intoxicated according to the state of Texas, but you are impaired. And that's what the Bible's talking about. When you are impaired in any way by alcohol, that's what drunkenness means in Scripture. Ladies, it's worse for you because you're smaller than most of us. Um so, ladies, uh, uh, impairment can happen um, with as little as two drinks and a 140-pound girl and, and on. Obviously, if you weigh less than that, you can be intoxicated uh, with as little as uh, two drinks, um, depending on how much you weigh. So, uh, or excuse me, as little as um, uh, one drink. Yeah, so one drink for a 120-pound uh, 120 woman, one drink can make her impaired. So, anyway, know your limits, but... Um, but my point is, drunkenness, don't, don't, when you read drunkenness in the Bible, don't think .08, that, that's, that's not it. It's any form of impairment. 
And that, and you, and if you were paying attention, you've noticed that. Because when the Bible talks about drunkenness, what does it talk about? It talks about the, the sort of buzz level alcohol symptoms as well as the full blown intoxicated symptoms, right? And things like bloodshot eyes, things like, um, uh, what does he say? You know, you're feeling ill, you're um, not totally aware of your surroundings, uh, things like that. By the way, alcohol is what sort of substance? Anybody know? It's a central nervous system depressant. And how do most people react to a nervous system depressant? Do you know? <clears throat> it creates a mild euphoria. And it leads to feeling less inhibited in your surroundings, which is why a lot of people drink socially, because it's a means to sort of let down, kind of have a good time and not be too worried about how you're coming across or anything like that. Uh, but it is a depressant. And of course, in larger quantities, that's when it has what you typically think of as a sedating uh, effect as, as more and more is consumed. But it's interesting uh, the actual effect that it has. Now, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, lest we, uh, we miss this point. Um, and this helps us to recognize why the Bible prohibits believers from being drunk. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, as you're turning there, this is, uh, Paul has unfolded the gospel. He's called us in chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And so now he's describing what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? What does that look like in sort of the day-to-day things of life? Uh, interestingly, uh, since we're in chapter 5, uh, let's start out in verse 7. He says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. And in context, be partakers with the sons of disobedience, the immoral, the impure, the idolaters, the covetous, the sexually immoral. That's what he's talking about. He says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 11, and do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. I'm I'm reading that because we're going to come back to that in a moment. Because sometimes the, the, the need for abstinence is not just in the drinking itself, but it's in the contacts, the social settings, the events, the parties, the whatnot that we would go to, where the Bible says don't participate in those things, that's shameful. What we ought to be doing is exposing those things. Anyway, down to verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine. There it is. There's the prohibition. If Jesus says don't do it, it's sin, right? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That is, um, uh, uh, it, it is, it is, um, unhelpful it is destructive we might say but notice the put on notice what we should do instead of getting drunk but be filled with the spirit now that works so well what pastor terry's just been talking about in the parallel passage here in romans chapter 8 right to be filled with the spirit to walk by means of the spirit means you're walking in self-control you're walking in righteousness you're walking in godliness you're walking in love for god and neighbor and and that that picture of walking in the self-control of the Holy Spirit is the opposite of being drunk with wine. Because when you're drunk, you're not entirely in control of your faculties, right? And so that's one of the main ways why the Bible would say don't do that. Same thing for kings, right? You get a little bit drunk, and now you pervert justice. You get a little bit drunk, and now you do and say things that you regret. You get a little bit drunk. And, and so a person cannot be impaired by alcohol and honor God. That's, that's the bottom line in the Scriptures. So we see that there. Galatians 5.19. Interestingly, drunkenness is one of the characteristics of the old life, isn't it? It's one of the characteristics of the deeds of the flesh. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, entities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I love that. Paul just says, you know what, there's more, I don't have time to write them all, so things like these. You get the idea. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I think there are many, many Christians today that go to um, 
Bible-believing churches who are living in various addictions, including drunkenness, and they don't recognize that that behavior is calling into question their faith. Because this text says, if these things... I'm not just picking on addictions and drunkenness. I mean, read the list. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff here that that could be uh, uh, indicative of a professing believer. And Paul says, if these are what characterize your life and there is a lack of repentance, there is a lack of uh, change and growth, that those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, sir. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm again not trying to pick on any denomination, anything. But yeah, there, there are there, there are pockets of of Christendom that have taken the the Bible teaches abstinence viewpoint, and then what they end up doing is I appreciate the credibility question because yeah, it does undermine credibility. It it also undermines the credibility of the Bible, right? Because then you and I are reading the Bible, going so it doesn't mean what it says it means. Well, what? And when your spiritual leader is telling you that, that calls into question his credibility. It also calls into question the, the scripture's integrity. So I appreciate that. That's a good point. Drunkenness in the Old Testament, by the way, was punishable by death. Did you know that? It was a capital offense. Now, I'm not saying it should be today. I'm not saying I'm not thankful that we're no longer under the law. Okay? Uh, uh, amen to those things. But, but listen, listen, listen. Guys, you got to get this. Even though the Bible doesn't prescribe those civil laws, since we're not in the nation of Israel today, it does teach us about the heart of God, doesn't it? Those civil laws reflect what God thinks. And so when we read about the death sentence, for whatever it is, that ought to give us pause to say, you know what, not every crime in the Old Testament resulted in a death sentence. Those that do are particularly egregious in the eyes of the Lord. And we ought to recognize that. I think we need to say that because drunkenness is so common today. I mean, I mean, who, who hasn't been to a Rangers game or a football game? And, and, you know, you remember when we took you to the Ranger game and, you know, we're surrounded by, by drunk people, Daddy. You know, what's, uh, what's going on here? And it's just normal. Um, and we need to hear that the heart of God is that that is, that is horrid. That is wicked. It is evil. Even though it's so common today. Next thing, we need to be wise about alcohol. And the first way that the Bible would tell us to be wise about alcohol is to simply follow the law. Follow the law. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and following says that God institutes governments and that believers ought to follow the commands and laws of the government um, insofar as they are not calling on its citizens to sin in some way. Now, let me let me talk to the, to the young people in the room here, okay? So, in the state of Texas... What is the legal age to consume an alcoholic beverage? Do you know? And not old people. I want to talk about young people. Do you know what the age is? It's 21 years old. Good job, Tucker. So what does that mean? That means that if you're honoring God, how's that go? You want to honor God. You're under 21. This is not, not a trick question. Don't drink. Can I make your life easy? You're not even allowed to your 21. Now, what's going to happen is you might be hanging with a football team, right? After the game party, prom. I don't know if they still do proms. They still do proms? Okay. Um, is it still like a dance and stuff or is it? Anyway. Okay. So, um, it, and right, and there's going to be parties. There's going to be uh, parents that have host parties and they serve alcohol. They think, oh, well, as long as the parents are there, you know, it's okay. And then you're going to go off to college and the wheels are going to come off. Now talk to me, old people. Is that not true? The wheels come off in college. Alcohol, you will be around more alcohol than you ever thought possible. You will think, I cannot survive college unless... I participate in this. There are parties, there are fraternities, there are sororities, there are football games, there are after-hours get-togethers, there are things that go on in dorm rooms, things that go on in apartments, things that go on on campus. 
And if you're not careful, young person, you will be another statistic of the millions of college students who get introduced to alcohol and who become addicted to alcohol in those four years of education. And I'm just telling you, and parents, if, if you got kids that are going into those years, we need to pray for each other, we need to huddle up, we need to talk to our young people, we need to work together, because it is, it is almost, it is almost impossible. I say almost because we believe in a God of grace and we believe in the Holy Spirit's power and it is possible to walk in sobriety and faithfulness. Um, I'll tell you what, man, I, I, I remember the first party I went to in college and it was like, I, I had a panic attack. I mean, it, it was so overwhelming. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. It was horrible. And I'm looking at these, these friends that I thought I had acting like absolute idiots. So young person, follow, follow the law, just, just, just make it simple. And then when you get in that environment, you don't have to be like all your friends. You, you don't have to be like all these other people. You don't have to do it to fit in. You don't have to do it because everybody else is doing it. You be a person of faith. You answer to God and you let His smile and His approval be what leads you to do the things that you do and to avoid the things that you avoid. And parents, we, we, need, to, we need to help our, our young people to be wise about those sort of things. Yes? Yeah, that's right. And, and our addiction counselor here would disagree, as we know, that that's, that's the, the easiest, what they call gateway drug, into all other forms. Uh, and even because it's legal after you're 21, that's part of the problem. And I'm not saying whether it should be legal or not be legal. What I'm saying is the, the accessibility to that is part of the reasons that it's so dangerous in those settings. Number two, don't be around drunk people. Can I just tell you that? Don't try to reason with a drunk person. I remember the first time I tried to do that. Never had this experience before. I'm trying to reason with a drunk person. I have no experience interacting with drunk people. I didn't get out a whole lot as, as a kid. Um, and it didn't... Uh, mm, that, I learned my lesson. Don't, don't go there. And, and, but, but here's the thing. The Bible doesn't just say, don't get drunk. It says, don't be around drunk people. You say, what about... Uh, what about a party if I don't drink? What, what about a football game? What about what about a get-together? What about a wedding? What about a reception? What about this? What about that? You know, you got to work that out between you and the Lord. I'm just telling you what the text says, okay? It says, don't be around drunk people. Furthermore, the Bible would tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that if it's a professing believer who is drunk, you are to disassociate with that person. Wow, that's strong. Paul says, don't even eat with that person. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. And we saw just a moment ago in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, don't participate with them, but actually expose them. Does that mean go on the party and stand on a table and say, you debauched people? Maybe. I don't know what that means. But what it means is the casualness with which Christians go into settings and situations and events, even if they're saying, I'm not drinking tonight, we really need to rethink that. Because I think this principle uh, has something to teach us about the wisdom of that. Number three, you have freedom. Christians have freedom, right? In all sorts of things. But let's look at how the Bible limits our freedom. The Christian does not have unlimited freedom. Look at 1 Corinthians. I do want you to look at this one. Look at with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. In the context, Paul is talking about how we use our bodies. So thinking about alcohol. And um, he's going to talk about immorality here in a moment. Um, but so how we're thinking about using our body fits right in line with what he's talking about. And in fact, uh, drunkenness is clearly in this context. If we look back at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and then he says this in 12. Okay, you have 6.12 in front of you, 1 Corinthians 6.12. All things are lawful for me. Stop right there. What does that mean? A Christian 
has an overall freedom when it comes to all things in life. Okay, and, and, and implied here that aren't intrinsically sinful. Obviously, we know that. But a Christian has a freedom in things that are not intrinsically sinful. Okay, there it is. But what limits those freedom? I want you to see two principles in this verse. Okay, there are two things that limit the Christian's freedom. Number one, but not all things are profitable. You may have freedom. It's not specifically sin, but it may, may not be good for you. It may not be profitable. It's not helping you. It's not, and, and here's, here's the thing you have to ask. Is enjoying this freedom helping me to be more like Jesus? Or is it inhibiting me from becoming more like Jesus? Is it helping me to promote godliness and righteousness? Is it inhibiting godliness or righteousness? And, and young people, you have to think about that too, right? I mean, that, that's, that's video games, that's music, that's movies, that's TV, that's all this sort of thing, right? It, it's, I may have the freedom, the Bible doesn't explicitly say I can't watch this, but you know what? As I'm watching this, I'm realizing that it's causing temptation it's causing me to think things that I shouldn't think. It's causing me to glory in things that I shouldn't glory in. And so it's not profitable. And this is where, brothers and sisters, we just have to be very honest because we may answer this question differently, right? You know, you may say, I feel like it can be profitable in my life to, to enjoy drink in moderation. Okay. Another person may say, you know what? It's not profitable. In fact, it, it, it causes more harm than good. Okay. So, so I think there's some freedom for diversity here in how this gets applied. Okay, so principle number one, it may not be profitable. Principle number two, all things are lawful for me, not all things are profitable. Back to the text, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. What does that mean? We know that alcohol intrinsically is addictive. It creates... Uh, Dependence. There are clearly defined withdrawal symptoms when you stop, which means your body is physiologically prone to need the alcohol. And this text says, if you're a Christian, you may have freedom, but we are not allowed to do anything or consume anything that would tend to master us. It would tend to take over our life or become what we think of in secular circles as an addiction. So we got to apply that. And again, this isn't just about alcohol. It's about video games. It's about sports. It's about music, entertainment. Here's an easy one. You're sinning if you need it or are controlled by it. That's the takeaway. You're sinning if you need it or are controlled by it. According to that verse. Number four, elders must not be addicted to alcohol. Sort of in the same way that the kings were forbid from drinking in the Old Testament. Elders are called in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. This is the elder pastors of the church. They, they cannot be addicted to much wine, the text tells us. We also must think about guilt by association. A believer is called to live above reproach, Philippians 2.15, and to avoid every form of evil. So, so think about this. Let's say, let's say young person, uh, you go to, you get invited to your first frat party, right? And all your friends are going and, and there's this fraternity and you're going, you're like, well, they're going to be drinking and doing all sorts of crazy things. I'll just go because I don't want to be offensive and I'm going to, you know, I'll just go because I, I won't drink, right? Because I'm, I'm too young and I don't want to do that. And, but I'll just go and kind of hang out with my friends and, well, this verse says you might want to rethink that. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's sinful or always sinful. But this verse says you have to think about what you're associating with. Because it affects your reputation. And your reputation, as we talked about a moment ago with preachers that misrepresent the text, your, your, your reputation before the Lord is necessary for what? Evangelism, gospel integrity, right? And, and, and this would be crazy. That I would lose my gospel witness, even by going to a party and not drinking one drop. I would lose my gospel witness because now I am seen as not living above reproach. So again, I think there's some room for different opinion here. There's room for diversity. But we need to at least think about before God, can I do this and be above reproach? Can I do this and avoid every form of evil? And of course, Ephesians 5 says, don't participate in evil. So there's a sense in which even if you're going and being around that, 
Even drinking in moderation but not getting drunk, what are you doing? What are you saying about your witness? Are you participating in evil? That's something that we all have to answer before the Lord. Next principle. You must never use your freedom to cause another to stumble. Uh, let's look at this uh, this text here. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 4. Are you with me? You guys are awful quiet. Am I stepping on your toes? I'm not trying to. just trying to trying to say what this text sells us. Um, I have a good friend, and um, God saved this dear friend out of a life of drunkenness. And I was with him, uh, this is years ago, um, and there was a Christian joking and talking favorably about consuming alcohol in the company of other believers. And my friend, who had been saved out of that and who God amazingly transformed, was totally distraught by that comment. Just buried him. Because here he was, having been redeemed from that, and now you've got... This other believer talking about it in terms of it's great, it's awesome, everybody does it, and and it really, really hurt him. I mean, it really did. And that's why we need to remember this principle, Romans chapter fourteen. Let's look at now. This is about um, not eating meat, and the parallel in First Corinthians nine is about meat sacrifice to idols. What what was happening? People were being saved out of pagan lifestyles where they would do things that were overtly sinful, like eating meat sacrificed to idols and that sort of thing. And, and so as these people are becoming Christians, they're saying, whoa, I'm not, meat, I'm not eating any more meat sacrificed to idols. Right? I'm, not, I'm not doing that anymore because that's a characteristic of my old life. And yet what was happening, Paul talks about it to the Romans and also to the Corinthians, is that these people that were abstaining, for example, from meat sacrificed to idols, because they, they, they came, God saved them out of that pagan background, they were sitting down in the company of other Christians and they were being served, you know, the cheap meat that was sacrificed to idols, and then it's the half-price sale at Kroger that afternoon at the grocery store, and now it's being served in the company of Christian brothers. And, and the end result is... That Christian whom God saved out of the pagan religion is sinning against his conscience by being offered that food. You guys are familiar with this text, but listen to the principle because it applies to alcohol as well as eating as well as Christian freedoms. Chapter 14, verse 21. It is good not to eat meat. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Here's what it's saying. If you are going to consume alcohol within the biblical framework that we looked at today, you must never use that freedom to cause another brother or sister to stumble. So what does that mean? It means you need to think about where you drink, when you drink, who's around when you drink, and who knows that you drink. I'm not promoting, you know, secretism. But you do need to think about these questions. And uh, I, I've, I've heard stories as recent as this past year where this principle is being violated and the people that are wanting to drink are saying, whoa, 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 you're being legalistic. I have the freedom to drink. Well, that's true. You do not have the freedom to drink in a way that causes your brother or sister to stumble. So in any freedom, including alcohol, we limit our freedom. We abstain from that freedom even if we know it might cause hurt to another Christian person. Number six, remember that your heart issue, remember that your heart, your motive is an important issue. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. So it's not enough to say the Bible gives me some freedom to do this. I have to ask the harder question, why do I want to? You know, sometimes drinking alcohol is wrong because a person is drinking too much. But you know what? Sometimes drinking alcohol is wrong because a person is doing it for the wrong reasons. And we talked about all the ways in our addiction series about, you know, drinking for escape, 
drinking to uh, not be as self-conscious, drinking to uh, forget about problems, drinking uh, under peer pressure. 1 Corinthians 10.31, you must be able to drink to the glory of God. If you can't do that, it's sinful. So we need to think about what are some godly motives, some, some potential godly motives. What are some sinful motives? Okay? Last principle. Last principle. And then I'm going to make a quick escape. Avoid illegalism, walk in faith and love. Avoid legalism, walk in faith and love. The Bible does not forbid all consumption of alcohol. Believers that teach that any alcohol consumption is sinful are going beyond the scriptures. That's what I believe. Okay? In terms, not, not my belief. That's what I believe that the scripture teaches. However, at the same time, believers do not have a right to drink alcohol. Believers do not have a right to drink alcohol. A believer may drink only if he can do so in faith, glorifying God with the right motive in a very limited quantity, without experience any form of impairment, in self-control, and without causing another believer to stumble. When in doubt, love of neighbor always means abstaining. Okay? Rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and this is where I appreciate that. And I appreciate your response, Dale. That is a very wise response is that the, the public settings are a big part of what we have to be careful of, because in a mixed group like that, it's hard to honor Romans 14. Um, you know, and, and you're, you're never going to catch me. Just I'll tell you right now, personally, you're never going to catch me, you know, sitting at the bar at Chili's drinking a Coke or Pepsi would be preferable. Um, just just because of who might be there. I, I'm not doing anything wrong, right? But by doing that, I'm calling potentially myself into question, living above reproach, my qualifications as a pastor. So I just, I'm not going to do that, even though I might have the freedom to do that. So we have to be careful about public settings, definitely. Another question? Yeah. Yeah, Nick. So we, we just verbalize that. Yeah. Yeah, it's safe, safer to work with a detox facility. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yes, sir. Let me just say this too. I mean, we have obviously um, our, our favorite deputy, uh, Tyler Looper, and uh, we have all sorts of friends in law enforcement, DPS, uh, Granbury Police, whatnot. Alcohol is a big problem in Hood County. It's a big problem in our high schools, in our junior highs. It's a big problem in our county. Um, this is huge. And, and we need to think, as we think about this personally and corporately, we need to think about the fact that we have a county that God has called us to be witnesses of the gospel and that's largely one of the things we're trying to help them to, to be saved out of. And so it's important that we maintain a level of integrity in our witness uh, with that. Um, so let's keep that in mind. Let's pray that God would uh, use us to that end. And let's pray that he would make us wise. Right after Regine has one more question. Um, yes, ma'am. Um, if, if we have a person in our
And, and we don't see a lot of that unless it makes the newspaper. You know, most of this stuff is hidden by families and and relationships because we we don't want it to get out. But yeah, I, I'd echo Regine's uh, comment that uh, we ought to be a place where, whether it's addiction, alcohol, or any other problem. This, this ought to be the place that we can come for help. You know, as brothers and sisters in Christ, not not heaping up com- condemnation, but offering grace to help in that and. Um, So thanks for that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and pray that we have uh, understood it rightly. And now would you help us to walk in wisdom in these things? Uh, Thank you, Lord, for uh, all sorts of freedoms that we enjoy. Will you help us to use those freedoms wisely? Uh, We pray for our young people that they will grow in grace and maturity. You will keep them from getting involved in so many vices and troubles and evils that this wicked world has for them. Make them strong in you that in the day of temptation they will, they will choose King Jesus over their friends, over having a supposed good time. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us gospel integrity in our community that both personally and publicly we would strive to be above reproach. Not, not perfect, we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we are a sanctifying work in progress by means of your Holy Spirit. But that we would have a level of honesty and integrity in our witness and in our evangelism that would allow us to be used by you to reach a lost world that's around us, a lost world that literally is drowning in alcoholism even in our own county. So will you give us grace to do that? In Christ's name, amen.